0: You can be seated, and if you will, just turn back with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be studying verses 31 through 39, Um, and as you heard those read, maybe you had the same response I've had while studying these, that this is an amazing passage, an amazing passage. It's one that, that has been one of my favorites for a long time. It probably started around high school, being in this room. And at that time, one of the most popular songs was that uh, Chris Tomlin banger, uh, Our God. Is that what it's called, right? You remember this song? And it just builds and builds and builds and builds. And then you get to the end and it's, you know, if our God is for us, then who can ever stop us? If our God is with us, what can stand against? And you play that and all of a sudden West Park students would become Pentecostal because it's just so like, wow, that is, you know, that is a strong statement. That is a strong truth. And so I love this passage, I loved it since then, but I think even more, I love this passage for a reason that's a little bit deeper than that. I love this passage because I think this passage is an antidote to fear, that's what i would describe it as, an antidote to fear. How can you be fearful if this is true, what we're studying? How how in the world can we be fearful? So let's start, let's talk about fear, because fear is actually a complex thing. At its most basic, fear... You want to give the basic definition. Fear is the anticipation of something dangerous. Anticipation of something dangerous. And that's not a bad thing. You need, you need to fear things. If you are, are walking through the smokies and a bear comes charging at you and you're not afraid, something's wrong, right? This is a fear is a gift from God to help us to avoid danger, to help us know that we need to get out of there. But psychologists, they 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 distinguish between what they call primary emotions and secondary emotions. So primary emotions are how we respond to stimuli. So fear as a primary emotion is a good thing. There are people who don't have that and it's not good for them, okay? So fear as a primary emotion is the bear coming at you, you running or fighting or whatever you do. But it can also become a secondary emotion. And this is what the Bible is dealing with when it tells us not to fear. You've probably heard the Bible tells us 365 times, I think it is, not to fear. That's a famous thing that's on Facebook all the time, right? 365 times not to fear. The Bible's not talking about being afraid of the bear charging at you. That's not the fear it's talking about. This is talking about fear as a secondary emotion. Here's how I would define that kind of fear, the fear that that the Bible is speaking about when it tells us not to fear. Here'd be my definition. This kind of fear is an active fixation on a hypothetical doomsday, and it's the belief that if the hypothetical doomsday happens, that God has failed us. That's the type of fear the Bible's talking about. It's that fear of of God not getting it right, of him not actually working for your good, The, the fear that he could get it wrong. It's a fear of man being controlled by the words of others and not the word of God. It's a fear of God, but not in the good way, right? There's a a good way to fear the Lord. We should fear the Lord, but this is a fear of God that that causes you to run away from him, run away from him in fear. And so in a sinful world, fear is a daily part of our lives. But what I want you to see is that there is a way out, (laughs) The Bible doesn't tell us 365 times not to fear and then not give us a solution. In 1 John 4.18, John tells us, perfect love casts out fear. And I think that this passage, what we're studying this morning, this is Paul telling us about this perfect love that casts out fear. This perfect love that allows you, even though you live in a sinful world, to not be afraid. And so let's work through it. And I want you to see here that Paul actually asks four questions, four questions. We're just going to take it a question at a time, and you'll notice he doesn't answer any of the questions, but they all share the same answer. It's no, or nothing, or no one. They all can be answered in the negative. So let's move through them, just starting in verse 31. Paul asks, You know, what shall we say to all these things? What should we say to this good news that we've been studying throughout Romans, throughout Romans 8? What do we say about this? Then he asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? I loved Rich's prayer earlier. If we just could know this one thing, that that God is for us. (laughs) Do you know that? God God is for you. God is without sin. He is infinitely beautiful. He is perfect. He's self-sufficient. He's self-existent. He's omnipotent. He's the creator of the universe. And he's for you <laughs> if you are in Christ. He is for you. Now, that okay, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's for you? I think, I think this is a good image of it. You know this passage, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It's actually the passage from the Old Testament that's quoted the most in the New Testament. And it's the passage where Moses is with God, and God starts describing himself to Moses. Remember this? Moses asked him to reveal his glory, and God begins to describe himself. Here's what's interesting. The first word that God uses to describe himself is the word compassionate. In the ESV, it's merciful, okay? Compassionate, merciful, depending on your translation. But the Hebrew word is rakum, rakum. And it's closely related, that Hebrew word, it's closely related to the Hebrew word meaning womb. Okay, So rakum, easy to remember, is womb in the Hebrew. That's, what it, that's the image that it's calling to mind. And so that word that God is using to describe himself, that he is compassionate, is telling you, it's telling us that he loves you the way a mother loves her newborn child. That's how God feels about you. He loves you. With that kind of love. He is for you like a mother is for her beloved child. Isaiah, it says as much Isaiah 49, 15. Here's what God says Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. I love this. What does it mean that God is for you? God says, I could forget about you no more than a mother could forget about her nursing baby. And then I love that he gives a qualifier. And even, he says, if, even if there is a mom out there who can somehow forget about her nursing baby, well, I won't do that, right? What does it mean that he's for you? I mean, what does it mean that a good mom is for her child? God is for you like this. If you are in Christ, that is your identity, that God is for you. So let me ask, do you live like that, right? Do you live like, I mean, that's the application for everything we're talking about today. Do you live like this is true? Do you live like this is true, that God is for you? I love this. Here's what Brennan Manning says. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. Let me ask, I mean, what, what is the primary way that you identify yourself? Is it mother, father, single, your job title, successful, educated? Name that thing for you. What's the primary way you identify, identify yourself? It's probably not a bad thing. We don't like to identify ourselves with bad things. But they make really bad identities. (laughs) If we could only primarily identify ourselves by the fact that we are loved by God, that he is for us. And here's the amazing thing. If you actually made that your identity, I promise you, you would actually be a much better parent. You would be a much better spouse. You would be a much better boss. If you actually put these in the proper order, you would do these other things well. But imagine if we put that as our foundation, that we are loved by God, because that's a foundation that can never be moved. There's security in that. Where do you find your identity? So God is for you. And this leads Paul to ask another question, well, then who can stand against us? (laughs) If God is for us, who can stand against us? Now, when you read that for the first time, maybe your, your instinct is to answer, a lot of people. Who can stand against me? I can name a hundred. Okay? I mean, I'm against me a lot of the time. My own sinful flesh, I, I'm, I'm out to get me. Okay, I'm a danger to myself a lot of the time. I'm the problem. Satan is still working. He's still out to get me. The, the, the sinful age that we live in is out to get me. You can maybe continue the list. My boss sure seems to be against me. My spouse sometimes seems to be against me. My kids often seem to be against me. Maybe you have that list. There's a lot of people. Paul, what are you talking about? But what he's saying here it isn't that we'll never face opposition, right? That would, that would be crazy. Paul, Paul knows that's not true based on his life. We talked about that last week. But his point is, what is this opposition compared to a God who can't be thwarted? I mean, think, I mean, think about it. It's a story that we know so well. When David said that he would go fight Goliath, what did everyone think? It's a suicide mission, suicide. Right? Like, 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 he's a little kid. Goliath is a giant, a trained warrior. What are you doing, David? But what did David know? He knew this. He knew that God is for him. And what's a giant to the God of the universe? <laughs> Nothing. So God is for us. And if the God of the universe is for us, then who could possibly be against us? So Christians should be the boldest, most confident people in the world. Not cocky, not sure of ourselves, not looking down on others, but sure of our God, right? Sure of our God, sure of the God we serve. We should walk into any room knowing the God of the universe is for me. <laughs> and that should bring a lot of confidence, shouldn't it? Let me, let me just admit something, okay? Okay. So I'm, I've, I've got the last two talks here of Romans 8, and that's great. You know, I signed up for them because I'm like, Romans 8, okay? I'm, I'm going to take the easy ones, okay? Like, of course I'm going to do the last two of Romans 8. These are amazing passages. Let me tell you what, what has been really frustrating in the last two weeks. Having to look at these passages that are so amazing and realizing how much I live like these are actually not true, right? Like, I mean, I'm up here preaching this, trying to convince you that it's true, and then I look at my life, and I'm like, how much different would my life be if I truly believed these things? Because we can say that we believe something, but if it doesn't affect the way that we live, we don't truly believe it. True belief will always lead to action. If I believed this wholeheartedly, if I believed this, it would change so much about the way I live. There would be a confidence that I would have, not in myself, but in God, that I just don't have right now. Okay. Maybe you're with me on that. Maybe you're with me where I, I'm encouraged and I, I'm really convicted, okay? So here, here's, what I, here's what I've decided, okay? You can join me in this or, or not. Here's what I've decided. I've decided that I'm not going to move past this, even though we're moving in the Romans 9, okay? I'm not going to move past this. Here's what I've decided to do. It's actually something that our entire training program here at the church is doing. There's about 51 of us going through this right now. We are committing to memorizing this entire passage, all of Romans eight, all 39 verses. Taking this passage, going into it every day and committing it to memory. Committing it to memory because maybe if we commit it to memory and it's there in our mind, maybe we'll start to actually live like it's true, amen? right? I mean, Dallas Willard said this. He's, he's, the, he's kind of the guy on spiritual disciplines, okay? He wrote the book on spiritual disciplines, and here's what he said. If I could choose one spiritual discipline over any other ones, I would choose scripture memorization because it's the one that can truly, I mean, they, can, they can all change your life, but this one changes your thinking. It changes the way you walk into a room, right? So here's, how, okay, great. Romans 8. This is amazing. I want to live like this is true, don't you? I want West Park Baptist Church that when we leave here, we walk into our, church, or to our, our workplaces, our classrooms, wherever God calls us, and we live like God is for us. And that no one can be against us. And we don't freak out over what the news says because they make money off making us scared, right? We don't freak out over that because God is for us. So that's my plan you can join me in that if you want. You can hold me accountable to it. I'm going to memorize this thing and just pray that I start living like this is true. Okay. Well, let me move on. Okay. Paul continues, and he really wants to prove to us that this is true. Okay. He understands that you know, maybe you hear that and you say, that's too good to be true. You don't live like this is actually true. And so he says, I want to prove this to you so you'll actually act like it's true. And he says, here's the evidence. Here's the greatest evidence I have. For Romans 8 being true, verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see Paul's argument? Okay. This is a very logical argument. Paul is saying here, if God is willing to give up his beloved son, then he has demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he truly loved us. And here's his argument. If he's willing to do the big thing, won't he do the small thing? Yeah, right? If he's willing to do the big thing, won't he do the small thing? If you're willing to buy a house, won't you fix the broken sink, right? Absolutely, if you'll do the big thing, you'll do the small thing. Here's, here's another way to think about it. Here's who gets this, Dollywood. They get this. You know why? If you show up at Dollywood, okay, you're gonna pay $90 per ticket to get into the park. I remember when it was like 40, the good old days, right? It's great. You're going to pay $90 a ticket to get into the park. You know what you're also going to pay? $20 to park your car. Why are they doing that? Because they know if you're willing to pay $90 a piece to go into the park for your family, you won't turn around and go home because it's $20 to park. If you'll pay the big thing, you're going to also pay the small thing. You see that? That's Paul's argument here. How can you ever doubt that God is going to take care of you? How can you ever doubt, how could you ever think that he's going to abandon you? He's proven that he won't because he's given the greatest thing he can possibly give, which is his son. You see the argument here? He will never abandon you, and he has proven that based on his actions before this. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, let us hear the Lord Jesus speak to each one of us. I will help you. It is but a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Consider what I've done already. What, not help you? Why, I bought you with my blood. What, not help you? I've died for you. And if I've done the greater, will I not do the less? Help you. It is the least thing I will ever do for you. The least thing I will ever do for you. Do you remember the story of the disciples and they're in the boat And the storm comes, and what's Jesus doing? He's asleep, right? And they run to him, and they say, basically this, get up, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care? Isn't that us, right? (laughs) Something happens, and what do we do? Get up, Jesus, don't you care? And what's Jesus' response to them? Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Can't you hear hear it in his voice. Do I care? Of course I care. Have I I not proven it, right? When we go to him and we say, Jesus, don't you care? Can't you hear him say, of course I care. Do you not see the cross? Do you not see that I left heaven for you to come live the life you couldn't live, to die the death that you deserve, and you say, I don't care? Of course I do. Help you. Help you. I mean, that is the least thing I will do for you. He will help us. And so Jesus looks at us and says what he says to his disciples in Luke 12, 32. I love this. He says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let me read that again. Fear not, little flock. Like a shepherd looking at us as tidying little lambs. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's nothing to fear. Then Paul moves to another question, verses 33 and 34. And it's two questions in here, you'll notice, but they're so closely related, I'll take them as one. He says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? I came across a story this week of a pastor, and he was talking about his life. He he had a really good reputation, okay? He did what all good pastors do. He stood up in front of his congregation on Sundays, and he preached good sermons. He led the church. He hung out with church members. He visited the sick in the hospital. By all accounts, he was a godly man. He was qualified to lead the church. But what no one knew was that this pastor was actually living a secret life. In his own words, this pastor, this is his quote, he says, I was completely obsessed with pornography, completely addicted. I couldn't get enough. And what started with pornography eventually evolved into him actually leaving his Sunday evening services where he would preach the word, leaving that service to go solicit prostitutes. Prostitutes. Sunday night after Sunday night after Sunday night. And this went on for years. Eventually his, his wife found out. She was the only one who eventually found out. She, she knew. They had three kids. So this eventually left, led to his wife, his kids leaving. Um, and this pastor just kept living in the secret sin. The secret sin that no one knew about. And he says, thinking back on this, that this was something that he wanted to stop doing, right? He saw what it was doing to his life. He wanted to stop this pattern of sin. And he says he would, he would close his laptop after watching porn, and he would just scream at God, asking him to take the temptation away. But here's what he, here's what he says, thinking back on it, that, that really stuck out to me. And, and just for context, he's now freed from this. He's now gotten victory over this sin. He's, he's decade you know, a decade or more past this, and so he's telling his story. But here's what he says, thinking back on this time. He says, this is the reason that it was a problem for so long. He says, I was begging God for a private solution to my private problem. Let me say that again. I was begging God for a private solution to my private problem. Do You see his point there. There are a lot of Christians... don't want to live in sin. They don't want to lose their family. They don't want to go through what this guy's going through, but they fear something else more. They fear others finding out about it. right? So they want a solution, but what they want is a private solution to a problem that stays private. The worst case scenario is that their big secret gets brought out into the light. That's what they're trying to avoid more than anything. You know, there's a story in John 8 where someone's biggest secret actually gets dragged out into the open. It's actually more than that. It's actually her that literally gets dragged out into the open. In John 8, we're introduced to a woman who is caught in the act of an adulterous affair by the religious leaders. Now, notice something there. They don't just have good evidence on her. They literally catch her in the act and drag her out of the house into the open. And in this culture, when you were caught in adultery, you could be stoned to death. And so these religious leaders, they, they take her out of the bedroom, they pull her out of the house, and they take her and they lay her at Jesus' feet. And in the context of the story, you have to know that she has just become a pawn in Jesus' game. And Jesus knows it. He has a choice to make, right? Will he be loving, right? Like, will he respond like the loving man he is, or will he uphold the law? And so she is brought right down before Jesus' feet. And so you can imagine the anticipation of what he's going to do. You remember what he does next? He doesn't answer, (laughs) He actually lets the anticipation build, and he actually bends down, And he starts writing something on the ground. Now, here's what's really frustrating. We have no idea what he's writing, okay? Like, there's no way to know. It doesn't tell us. Here is something interesting, though, what, what commentators point out. We don't know what he's writing. We don't know for sure what he's doing. But here is an interesting thing that that would accomplish. You have to think, Jesus is standing there. And there's this woman who has been pulled out of bed, laying there just embarrassed. All eyes are on her. So at least what he does in this moment, when he bends down to start writing, he at least gets all the eyes on him, right? Everyone's looking down to say, what in the world is he writing? And then he comes up and and he he finally says something, and, and you know his words well, right? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And everyone, one by one, just starts dropping their stones and walking away. And then Jesus approaches this woman, and he asks her, he says, where are your accusers? And the woman replies that there are none left. And so here's what Jesus says. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Amazing story. Amazing story. Let me point out a few things. First of all, first of all, a lot of Christians not only want to keep their sin private from the world, they actually want to keep it private from God as if that's possible. But our sin often causes us to run away and hide, and it's been that way from the very beginning. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They run away and they hide. That's our response as sinful human beings. We sin and we run away and we hide. But notice, this woman at the low point of her life, dragged out into the open, but think about this, She was dragged to the best place for her to be, at Jesus' feet. (laughs) There is not a better place for her to end up than where she ended up, at Jesus' feet. Because think about this. Think about this. Who has the right to cast a stone? Answer Jesus' question. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Who's the one that could still be holding a stone? Jesus, right? Jesus. That actually could be scary to the woman if she knew what's happening. Literally, the one who could cast a stone is standing over you. But instead, she is met with no condemnation. And Paul says the same is true of us if we are in in Christ. Romans 8:1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And not only that, Paul tells us in our passage that Jesus actually intercedes for us based on the perfect life that he lived. You know, here's something I've noticed about myself. I mean, I'm a a fearful person. I have fears, but but I can often believe that Romans 8.28 is true. Talked about that last week. I I can believe that God is working for my good. I can watch the news and see something scary and think, I know that God is working for my good in this. I can have something happen to me and think a lot of the time, God is working for my good in this. Here's where I fall apart. It's when I'm the one who's failed. It's when I'm the one who's blown it. I start to think that God can't work that for good. Yeah, he can work other people's sin for good. He can work other people's mistakes for good, not mine. Romans twenty eight doesn't, doesn't apply when I blow it. But Paul puts that to rest right here. No, even that, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Have you ever asked yourself this? What is Jesus doing right now? We know he lived. We know he died. We know he, he, he rose again. We know he ascended. What is he doing right now? He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. When I sin, He is interceding for me. So there is nothing to fear. Second, not only does Jesus not condemn those who are in Him, Paul tells us that no one can bring condemnation against those who are in Christ. Satan will try, right? Satan will try. Satan will circle back and try. I I, I used this example in our our community group the other day. Been watching a lot of kids' movies, obviously, because I have kids, right? I was watching The Lion King. You remember the scene in The Lion King, okay? Scar basically blames or, or Mufasa dies, right? Okay, spoiler alert. Okay, it's been out for 30 years, so you'll get over it. But Mufasa dies. Mufasa dies. Scar comes around, and what does he do? He blames Simba, right? He comes around. Simba's already feeling bad. Scar comes around. He blames Simba. And then what does he tell him to do? Run. Get out of here. You've blown it. No one wants you anymore. That's actually a pretty good image of Satan's game, right? You fall, and what's he going to do? He's going to come back around. He's going to say, you blew it. God wants nothing to do with you. Don't run to him. You've blown it one too many times. But what's that old hymn? I'm probably going to butcher it because I'm just doing it off the top of my head. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made a way for all my sin, or made an end to all my sin. That's it, right? We look to Jesus when we blow it. And he is interceding for us. And so Satan can't condemn us. And no one else can condemn you, right? Right? So when you are not willing to confess your sins to others, you are not believing the gospel. You're believing that you have to have it all together. You're believing that you have to walk into a room and everyone has to look at you like, wow, look at them. Everyone knows you're messed up. You wouldn't be here if you weren't messed up, right? You would have no need for Jesus if you didn't know you were messed up. So we can confess our sins to others. We don't have to fight alone. That's number two. Here's the final thing. This is big. Jesus doesn't allow the woman to stay where she is. He doesn't say, I don't condemn you, now keep go having your affairs. That's not what he says, right? He says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Now, I don't know about you, but I would probably, in my natural bent, reverse the order of that. If you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. Clean yourself up and get back to me. But Jesus puts intimacy before obedience. We go fight sin, but we do it as people who are beloved by God. You see that? We go fight, but we do it as people who God is for. So let me just say this. There are are a lot of Christians who take this passage or take any other passage that talks about God's love for us and what they take it to say is, you know, I have this sin struggle. I have this thing. It's just part of me. Jesus loves me anyway. That's it. It's just always going to be a part of me. There's nothing I can do, but Jesus loves me anyway. Well, Jesus doesn't leave it, leave it there. He says, yes, I love you. I don't condemn you if you're in me. You are a beloved son or daughter of God. Now go fight. Okay? Go fight. Stop sitting there wallowing in this sin struggle. It's it's been here for decades. I'm never going to get over it. Go fight. Right? Go fight as someone who is beloved by God. Fight from that posture. Because that is true of you. But Jesus calls you to go and sin No more. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God and fight. Now let's move to Paul's fourth question in our passage, and I'll I'll close with this. Verses 35 through 39, it says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then here's Paul's answer. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So at the beginning of the sermon... I started by talking about fear, right? Fear is something that we all deal with in one sense, right? We all, in a sinful world, we're going to experience fear. If you go and just search around on the internet, you go pull off a book um, at Barnes and Noble or whatever on on fear or anxiety, there's gonna be this word that you're gonna find in there. It's just kind of a fun word to say. But the word is catastrophizing. You heard this? Catastrophizing, That's, that's the word. And here's basically what that would say, okay? catastrophizing. The, the, the advice here is that to deal with unhealthy fear, we should stop thinking of the worst case scenario because it's likely never going to happen. Oftentimes in our fear, we are fearful of things that don't even exist. We're fearful of things that are never going to happen. Now, I'll say this. That's a good point. Okay? I mean, that, that is a good point. Like I, I, There are often times where I fear things that never actually come to fruition. They never, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Harry Truman said one time, you know, if you see 10 boulders coming at you down a hill, don't worry too much, nine of them are gonna roll off before they get to you, okay? And that's true for a lot of life. But here's what I will say. Sometimes that 10th boulder does make it. Sometimes catastrophes happen. So we're told not to catastrophize, good advice, But what happens when the catastrophe actually comes? I talked earlier in my definition about a hypothetical doomsday. Sometimes doomsday comes. Sometimes the thing that you fear the most, the thing that keeps you up at night, it actually happens. There are probably people in this room who your greatest fear became a reality. If that happens, has God abandoned you? No. No. Even if the doomsday scenario in your mind happens, it cannot separate you from the love of God. His love for you is like an ocean with no bottom or shore. It's not going anywhere. You're you're immersed in it. You can't get out of it. Paul says here in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Isn't that awesome? We are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, more than conquerors. What's that mean? Well, we, you know, a conqueror, they, they, they defeat their enemy. The enemy is defeated, and that's true, okay? Name your enemy. The enemy is defeated because Jesus Christ died for you. He achieved the victory for you, but it's not only that. We are more than conquerors. It's not just that we're able to make it past our enemies. It's not just that we're able to get by them. Even our bad things, even our worst things, even our doomsday scenarios, we can be certain that they're actually all working for our good. Isn't that amazing? It's not just that you can survive. It's not just that when the bad thing comes, you can make it through. It's that that bad thing is actually working for your good to make you look more like Jesus. And there is security in the fact that you are eternally invincible. Nothing can ever shake you because your eternity is completely secure. If you are in Jesus, you are eternally invincible as he is. Think about this. The true worst case scenario, okay? If you're a Christian in this room, let me tell you your worst case scenario. What is the worst thing that can possibly happen? Resurrection and eternal life with Jesus. That's your worst case scenario eternal life and, war, and, and eternal life and resurrection. that's where you're headed. that's where you're headed. Let me pray. Lord thank you for this <laughs> thank you for this I just I pray again as I mentioned earlier I pray that we'll believe this like like really believe it not just with our minds not just, as a fact, not just as a theological doctrine that you are sovereign and in control and that you love us, but that we will live and breathe and work and play as if all this is true. That you are for us, that even when it feels like no one else is, that you are for us no matter what. That you sent your son to prove it that there's no condemnation for us if we are in you and that we can go down this list tribulation, distress, persecution, famine nakedness, danger, sword job loss miscarriages death to a family member cancer illness financial problems I mean, name it. They can't separate us from you. They can't, they can't separate us from your love. If doomsday happens, we are secure in you. And you're never letting us go. Lord, we thank you that you are the King of kings. You just look at all the governments gathered together, everything that we stress out about as we watch the news, and you just laugh because you are the true king. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will stand.